Just before we come to the Lord's Word this morning, let's bow together briefly for prayer. Let us seek the Lord. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we are before Thee, and we desire a word from Thyself. Pray that Thou wilt prepare our hearts for partaking of the elements at communion today. Speak to our souls, Lord, and we pray that Thou wilt be glorified in all that is said and done. Give me the power of the Spirit, and may the Spirit of God fall also upon all them that hear the word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. The book of Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read a few verses beginning at verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In a recent communion service, I was reminding the people of God of the fact that there are many things that we believe as Christians And it is important for us to know why we believe those things. There are also some things that we practice in the church of Jesus Christ. And it is really vital that we know why we practice those things. There's a scripture in the Old Testament where the children of the people of God came to their fathers and asked a question, What mean ye? by these things? What is it that you're doing? Why do we do these things? Why are these ceremonies taking place? And it's really important that we have an answer to such questions. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 by the Apostle Paul in verse 13, we having the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken, we also believe, and therefore speak. When I think about that scripture, I think about uh, an incident in the ministry of the late Dr. Alan Cairns that he told us about. Someone came to Dr. Cairns once in Greenville and said to him, you know, Mr. Cairns, you always think you're right, don't you? And Dr. Cairns, in his inimitable fashion, said, well, do you think I stand in the pulpit and preach something because I think it's wrong? That's a very good answer. This is what the Scripture says. We believe and therefore speak. 
the things that we believe are the things that we articulate. And hopefully we're never going to speak that which we don't believe. But we're always going to be very faithful to the Scripture and to our own conscience as guided by Scripture. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 said in verse number 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That means set the Lord apart in your hearts and even in your thinking. And, notice this, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Someone asks you, why do you do this? You should be able to give them an answer from the Scripture. In the Old Testament, God established certain feasts. One of those feasts was the Feast of Passover. It was kept as a memorial each year. We learn about the institution of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, where it is referred to as the Lord's Passover. It's really interesting to me that when you come to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, it will speak of it as the Jews' Passover. In other words, it had slipped. It had gone from being the Lord's Passover to being something that they just did. We learn from the book of Exodus in chapter 12 and again in chapter 13 that the feast of the Passover was to be held every year among the Jews for a particular purpose. It was to be a reminder to them of the redemption that they were about to experience through the blood of the Lamb. And thus, one of the regular practices in the worship of the Christian church to this day is the celebration of the communion feast. Now, it's always been my practice from the very commencement of my ministry to seek to prepare myself and my congregation for the Lord's Supper by preaching about it or by preaching a message that relates in some way to communion. So therefore, if I'm in a series of messages, sometimes I will set that series aside for a Lord's Day in order to preach a message concerning the Lord's Supper. Because I think it's important for us to think about why we're doing what we're doing. Now, sometimes I will, in our own church, take up a portion that directly relates to the cross and to the sufferings of the Lord, or I might choose out a portion of the Word that relates to some particular aspect of the person and work of Christ. Now, why do I do this? Well, because it is important that we always link together the Word of God with the sacraments of the church. I want to prove from Scripture that what I'm doing is right. And if we can't do that, <clears throat> then we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. It is important, and church history provides plenty of precedent for this. For example, in the ministries of two prominent Protestant Reformation heroes, John Calvin of France and John Knox of Scotland, they always drew a strong link or made a strong link between the sermon and the supper. The sermon and the supper always went together. And I'll just quote here from John Calvin, who wrote about his own practice and that of the Reformed churches in this way. Quote, On the day of the Lord's Supper, 
the minister touches upon it in the conclusion of his sermon. Or better, if there is occasion, preaches the whole sermon about it in order to explain to the people what our Lord wishes to say and signify by this mystery and in what way it behooves us to receive it, unquote. As I say, John Knox, uh, his practice was exactly the same. In this country, the American Puritan, who you may have heard of, Cotton Mather, described how the Lord's Supper was observed in the churches of New England. Quote, When the Lord's Supper is to be administrated, the pastor gives notice of it a week beforehand. And when the Lord's day for it arrives, he usually accommodates the solemn occasion before him with a sermon upon some agreeable doctrine of the gospel, unquote. Of course, we should understand that the supper itself is a visible sermon. It's a kind of acted-out parable, if you will. Because when you look at the elements, the broken bread and the poured-out cup, it reminds us visibly right away of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you read 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Now that word show literally means ye do declare or preach it forth. So this table today is, is a preacher. It preaches to you and it preaches to me that Christ died. That Christ died for his people. That he died to take away their sins and bring them at last to heaven. And again, to quote John Calvin on this, the right administration of the sacrament cannot stand apart from the Word. For whatever benefit may come to us from the supper requires the Word of God, whether we are to be confirmed in faith or exercised in confession or aroused to duty. There is a need of preaching. So we're on good ground today in our practice. There should be a freshness about our approach to this ordinance. And I believe that preaching on a variety of themes related to it will help us in that way. There's nothing worse than something that we do becoming a ritual or a habit or a form. We do it because we do it. It's that particular Sunday of the month, so that's what we do. And we go through the motions. We want to avoid that at all costs. We want to come to the supper with this attitude, even if we've been saved for many, many years. This is the first time that I'm remembering the Lord's death for me. That's how we should seek to be. As someone said, each communion season is a new reminder of an old reality. A new reminder, a fresh reminder of an old reality reality. So we're familiar with these things. Let not our familiarity breed any kind of contempt or carelessness. Now, what is the Lord's Supper? It's a gathering of the Lord's people in which they obey Christ's command to remember and celebrate His atoning death for sinners, for them. 
It is something that puts a visible difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate. Those who can and do partake of the supper, we differentiate from those who cannot. I remember in my early ministry, first as a student minister and then as the ordained pastor of that flock in Mount Marion Church, hardly seems possible now, but way back in the early 1980s, we lived near the church, probably less than a 10-minute drive, and there was one Sunday in the month when we could hardly get up that road to our own church to get past the cars that were parked on both sides of the road at this big Anglican church. Now, I, I realized very soon after we got there why that was. Every other Sunday, there's hardly anybody there. But on that particular Lord's Day, the place was bunged out. It was packed. Why? Because they were having communion. They were having communion that Sunday. And all those people, droves of them, all there on that one occasion to take communion. I remember thinking to myself and saying often to my wife, I wonder how many people going in there are eating and drinking damnation to themselves, not discerning the Lord's body. It was a habit, you see. It was a ritual. It was something that you did. But we need to understand that when we consume these two visible elements, the bread and the cup, they represent our own personal participation in the redeeming work of Christ. That's what we're saying here. Jesus died for me. That's what we're saying. Jesus died for me, and therefore I am taking these reminders of his death to me, not for any real physical nourishment that these little things provide to me, but the spiritual nourishment that I receive from thinking about Christ's death for me, entering into the benefits of his death for me by partaking in a supper that he himself instituted. So as the believer comes to the table, he does so with the spirit of Wesley's great hymn upon his heart. And I'm sure you know it well. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? That's the spirit in which we should come to the table. Now, on this particular occasion this morning, I want to concentrate upon a great biblical theme related to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is the theme of redemption. Now, you'll know that word. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and attended an evangelical church, even the free church, you will often have sung such hymns as, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed. His child and forever I am. Or, I am redeemed, O praise the Lord. My soul from bondage free has found at last a resting place in Him who died for me. Or, rejoice and be glad. The Redeemer has come, etc., etc. So many hymns, you can look them up in our book, that mention 
the Redeemer, or mention redemption, or being redeemed. Wonderful theme. But we think about that term and the related terms, redemption, redeemed, redeemer. What do they mean? What do these terms signify? What does it mean when we as believers say we have been redeemed? Well, notice the text in Ephesians 1 verse 7 that we just read a few minutes ago. Speaking of Christ, it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. That is repeated, of course, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood. And when you read 1 Peter chapter 1, you come across these words, verse 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Redeemed. Now, when we consider the theme of redemption, it makes us to think, I believe, of three areas or three things that we could say about it. Number one, it causes us to consider the need for redemption. The need for redemption. The Word of God, the Bible, describes your condition and mine as sinners in a variety of ways. One way that our spiritual state by nature is described is that we are in bondage or slavery to sin and guilt. When Paul wrote to Timothy, for example, he spoke of those who were held captive by the devil at his will. They're in bondage. He used the same terminology in Romans chapter 6. If you care to look at verse 20, Romans chapter 6, verse 20, Paul writes, For when ye were, past tense, the servants of sin, and the word doulos, douloi, the plural of that signifies literally a bond servant, a bond slave. For when you were the bond slaves, the slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. And you can see there that there's a bondage to guilt. There is a slavery to sin. And so in this and other scriptures, the condition is used to illustrate our condition. We're in bondage. As those held captive, we need to be redeemed. Now, this was literally true of the children of Israel. When you look at what happened to them as a people in Exodus chapter 12, they were a people at that time in bondage. They were in bondage to a power, even the power of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They were held in slavery, and they needed to be released and delivered from that slavery. And so you have the Exodus. The word Exodus means the way out. By the way, that word Exodus, it's used again in a New Testament sense on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember where it says that Moses and Elias spoke with Jesus and they spake of his decease? His decease. 
which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The word in the original Greek is Exodus. It's amazing. The way out, the deliverance. They needed to be delivered from Egyptian bondage. And how were they delivered? They were delivered by sacrifice, by the blood of the Lamb. And so what you have there literally in the case of Israel, we have spiritually in the case of every New Testament believer. We're held in bondage. We need to be redeemed. We need to be delivered. And what redemption signifies is a setting free by the payment of a price. When you redeem something, you pay a price for it. Redemption means to set free by the payment of a price. And so to redeem a sinner literally signifies to set him free from the bondage of his sin by the payment of a ransom price. And this Christ has done for us. This we remember at the table. The story is told of a particular place where a man was selling birds. And the birds at that market were all inside a big cage. There's hardly any room for the birds. Just enough room for them to move about a little bit. But there they were, all kinds of birds in that cage. And a visitor to the market came by, the bird seller, and he said, I want to buy all the birds in the cage. Really? Like every one of them? Yes. How much do I owe you? I want to buy every single bird in that cage. There might have been 40 or 50 of them. And they were all exotic birds. They were colorful, they were beautiful. And so he paid the price, took the cage from the bird seller, opened the cage door and let them all fly free. And the bird seller was apoplectic, couldn't believe, what are you doing? Oh, he said, I was once in prison. You have no idea the joy that was mine on that day when the prison doors were opened and I was able to go free. I want those birds to experience the same thing. He set them free by the payment of a price. Those beautiful exotic birds, all caged up, all incarcerated, you see, they became his by right because he paid the price for them. And so he had the right to do whatever he wanted with them. He could release every last one of them if he wanted to, and he did. Now, that's just an illustration. But it's an illustration of something infinitely greater, the work of our Redeemer. We need to be set free by nature. We need to be redeemed. We need to be released from bondage spiritually because our slavery to sin is real. Look at a couple of other scriptures that really teach this. Uh, Romans chapter 7, from verse 14 Paul said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And then he says, 
For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. You see there that there's the thought of him being in bondage. Now you read in verse 23 where he talks about, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this flesh? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the one who releases us from bondage. We need redemption. And anyone who would listen to this message who's still in nature's darkness, you need to be redeemed. You need to be released from the chains of sin. You need the Lord to cut those chains and to set you free. 2 Peter 2.19 While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants, the slaves, the bond slaves of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. I've met people who tell me, you know, I could give up this alcohol at any time I want to. But they never do. They don't give it up. Because in many cases they can't. The, the need for redemption. But let's think secondly of the nature of redemption. The nature of redemption. What is redemption? It's a great and mighty work because of what it involves. And what does it involve? Well, it involves being set free, as I've indicated, but being set free from two things. Number one, from the curse of the law, and secondly, from the condemnation of sin. The first of those, redemption involves being set free from the curse of the law. Now, what is that curse? Consider Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. There Paul speaks clearly of this. Galatians 3, 13. Christ hath redeemed us. There's the word again. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. We are under the curse of the law in the sense that we are condemned because of our failure to keep it. We are not able to keep the law. We have never been able to keep the law. And even if we were from this point onward to keep the law, it's too late. We've already broken God's law. We're under its curse. We're in bondage, if you like, to that. There is a whole range of handwriting of ordinances that is against us. And the book of Colossians speaks of this. It's referring to the requirements and the stringencies of God's law, the restrictions of God's law. What has Christ done? The Bible tells us what he has done. He has released us from the curse of the law. It mentions there in the book of Colossians his sufferings for us, how that he has reconciled us unto himself. And mention is made there of the fact that our Lord has delivered us, chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 14, by blotting out 
the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You know, whenever a prisoner would be crucified, in the days when Christ was crucified, they would write a placard upon which were noted the crimes of the person for which he was being crucified. Of course, the one that was written concerning Jesus wasn't to the satisfaction of the Jews. They didn't like it. But Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. What did he write? This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That was the charge. And it was correct. The Lord pled guilty to that charge. He is the King of the Jews. And the Jews didn't like it. They said, well, you better write on there. He said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate said, no, I've written what I've written. He said, I'm the king of the Jews. But in other cases, you would have had this man is being crucified for robbery. This man is a thief. This man is a murderer. And there would be a list sometimes of, his, of the charges for which he was condemned on that placard nailed to the top of his cross. And this is what Paul has in mind here. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, the law of God, all the charges that are brought against us. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You've had other gods before me in your life. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Well, you may not have sat down and carved out an image, but you've had images in your heart. You've set up idols in your heart. You've taken the Lord's name in vain. You've broken his Sabbath day. You've not honored your parents. You've committed murder. Even if you were angry with somebody without a cause, you didn't need to actually kill them because you've murdered them in your heart. You've stolen. You've committed adultery. You've lied. You've coveted. There's the charges against you. You've broken God's law. We're under the curse. And furthermore, we were commanded by God's law that we'd have to keep every precept in order to be redeemed. That's what was called the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. Here's all these trees, Adam. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but you're not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. That's the covenant of works that God made with Adam. If Adam, of course it's theoretical, it's all hypothetical, but if Adam had continued to obey God and not eaten of the tree that he was forbidden to eat of, he would have lived on. He would have lived on. He would never have died. But he did sin, and all men sinned in him. So we're all under the curse of the law. We haven't continued in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5 speaks to that. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5, the Lord came to, notice it, redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons under its condemnation, under its obligations. That's what it means. But the death of Christ sets us free from the law in our justification. Now, notice what I said there sets us free from the law in our justification. When we sing, free from the law, O happy condition, we don't mean that now it's okay to murder someone. Now it's okay 
to break God's day. It's all right now to commit adultery. It doesn't matter. We're not under the law. And that's not what the Bible means when it says you're not under the law. One of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible is Romans 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. People forget that part of the verse. They just quote the second part. For you are not under the law, but under grace. How often has someone come to you and to me and said, Oh, you see, in your church, you're a bunch of legalists. You're a bunch of legalists because you believe that the Sabbath day now continues. Don't do this on Sunday and that on Sunday. You're a legalist. Really? Was Jesus a legalist? If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. That sounds like law to me. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. That sounds like law to me. Thou shalt. So what does it mean? You're not under the law, but under grace. It means you're not under the law's condemnation anymore. Because Jesus has borne all the condemnation. He has fulfilled the law perfectly in his life and in his death. And that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, notice it carefully. There's no period in the middle of the verse. It doesn't say, for Christ is the end of the law, period. It says, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness. Ah, oh, that's different. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. As someone said, the law of God, the moral law, is not a way to life for the Christian. Christ is the way to life, but it's a way of life for the Christian. Paul spoke of being under the law to Christ in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 21. So the nature of redemption is that it involves being set free from the curse of the law. So that we can come to Romans chapter 8 and read these words. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What's the charge you're going to bring of law-breaking against this person? It's God that justifieth. He's pardoned all our sins. He's received us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. He suffered our condemnation. Yea, rather that is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And that brings you back to verse 1 of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We're redeemed from the curse of the law. I said there were two things. We're redeemed from the condemnation of sin. Set free. There's redemption from the power of sin. Romans 6 speaks to this. You see there the servitude that there was before we were saved. Romans 6 verse 18. Being then made free from sin. It means you're, you're free from its condemnation. Free from the bondage. You became what? The servants. The bond slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God. So you, you swap the bondage of sin for a blessed bondage to God. You're his servant. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. There's redemption from the power of sin. Believers have been redeemed also from the pollution of sin. 
A Christian might say, well, I'm not sinless, but I certainly sin less. I'm certainly not what I used to be. Things are different now. Something happened to me when I gave my heart to him. Things I loved before have passed away. Things I love far more have come to stay. Things are different now. Something happened to me since I gave my heart to him. I was telling Brother Herb in his house about a man who I once knew in Scotland many, many years ago who had the reputation of being a drunk, and he was. He was, he was a character. Uh, they used to shut up all the taverns in the town when he was coming because they knew if they didn't, he would wreck the place if he was drunk. Terrible case. Once he heard a man preaching in the open air, Jock Troop of Scotland. God smote Duncan, who was known in the area as Drunken Duncan Donaldson. The Lord smote him, and he was converted on the spot, saved by grace. His life was transformed radically. And Duncan decided to become an open-air preacher himself. So he'd go to the very spot where he was converted. And he would stand there at Airdrie Cross near Glasgow, and he would take off this big fisherman's sweater, a big iron woolen sweater, he'd take it off like this, to reveal a T-shirt on which were emblazoned the block capital letters under new management. That's true. And he would go to preaching and tell what God had done for his soul. Under new management. I'm not the same as I used to be. Because Christ has done a work of redemption in me. Believers have been redeemed from the pollution of sin. Look at Titus chapter 2 verse 14. The Lord didn't just die to take you to heaven who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us, there it is, from all iniquity, look at this, and purify unto himself a peculiar people. It means a purchased people, zealous of good works. That's what the Lord has done. He has saved us, yes, to take us to heaven, ultimately. But first of all, to save us from the power and the pollution of sin. And of course, ultimately, then the believing soul is delivered from the very presence of sin. Oh, that's a great thought, isn't it? To be in a place where there is no more sin. Must be wonderful to be in heaven and not have to be annoyed by some of the wickedness that we see around us day and daily. In Job Uh, chapter 5, I believe it is. In verse 20, the Lord says, In famine he he shall redeem thee from death, and in war from the power of the sword. But not only are we redeemed from physical death, but also we're redeemed from the very presence of wickedness in that place where we shall never, ever sin. So the sinner needs redemption. He requires setting free from the slavery and bondage of sin and its consequences. But of course, the price is too high for him to pay. He's bankrupt. He is in debt to God, actually. He's helpless. He's hopeless. He requires a redeemer. And that brings us to the third and final point here. We've talked about the need for redemption and the nature of redemption, but there's the name of redemption the name of redemption, and it's the Redeemer himself. 
Christ our Redeemer died on the cross. What is his name? Christ, the Lamb of God. We're not redeemed with corruptible things, but with his precious blood. I am redeemed, but not with silver. I am bought, but not with gold. Bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. Precious price of love untold. Jesus is the name of the Redeemer. He came to redeem us. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is why he came. His blood was the price of freedom for us slaves, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You know, there's a large section of the Gospels uh, taken up with the story of our Savior's death, and that's so significant, is it not? Because, you see, we're not redeemed by his teachings. We're not redeemed by his miracles. We're not redeemed by the good example he set before us, but by the precious blood that he shed. He died for us. He paid the debt for us. One of our hymns says, We are by Christ redeemed. The cost his precious blood be nothing by our souls esteemed like this great good. Were the vast world our own with all its varied store and thy Lord Jesus word unknown, we still were poor. And our Redeemer paid the ransom price to set us free. Job said it in Job 33, 24, I have found a ransom. Now the Seventh-day Adventist so-called church, it's a cult, don't let their beautiful music fool you. The Seventh-day Adventists are a cult. They believe unless you keep the commandments of God perfectly, you're lost. Unless you keep the Seventh-day Sabbath, that is Saturday, as your day of worship, you're lost. They also teach blasphemously that in the end, all the sins of God's people are going to be laid on Satan. He is the scapegoat to them of Leviticus 16 because they divide the sin offering into two rather than realizing that two aspects of the one offering are in view. And so that wicked idea as part of their belief system is in relation to the scapegoat that our sins finally are going to be laid on Satan. What a blasphemy. No, our sins were laid on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. We were the slaves of sin. The devil's power was that of an invader or a usurper. He had no rights of ownership over us. It was God who made us. God has all the rights to us. All souls are mine, the Lord said. And so the ransom price was paid to satisfy the demands of the law of God, which we violated by our sin. The law demanded that the wages of sin be the death of sinners, but Christ satisfied that demand on our behalf when he shed his blood on the cross, taking full responsibility for our sin, which included its guilt and its punishment. And his death is the only payment that is acceptable to God. Thank God it has been accepted. Revelation 1 tells us that he loosed us from our sins. The name of redemption is the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it good to be redeemed? Isn't it good to know that you have a redeemer? We've been bought back from the slavery and the bondage of sin. Sin doesn't have to have dominion over us anymore. It doesn't. We can say with others, sing, O sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free.
That's what's in view here at the supper. This is what we're thinking about today. Redemption by Jesus' blood. May the Lord help us to worship and to adore our Redeemer. Amen.